that's the biggest mistake I see in leadership that I'm still learning to not make myself is to hire for talent. And the reason I say you got to hire for talent and then go big is if you have people that are truly talented, they're not going to follow you if you're not going big enough. So how can you expand globally as an organization? So if you're looking at the next two years, what I think you need to do as a leader is you need to take your vision and 100x it. And you have to articulate that 100x vision every day. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. This is my first recording of 2022. So I'm stoked to welcome Garrett Mergut to the show. Garrett, I always have the guests do an introduction. You know you better than I know you. So uh, let it rip, man. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Ledge. Uh, excited to be here. Yeah, and uh, welcome, I guess, to our first, it was my first, I think, podcast interview of 2022 as well. I might have done something last week, but no, it's good to be here. Yeah, bio-wise, I run an agency called Directive. Uh, we do performance marketing for software companies, primarily SEO, paid media, revenue operations, uh, strategy, creative. We work with about 150 software companies uh, right now, currently. And uh, got a great team, a uh, really, really talented group. Yeah, I'm really, really excited for 2022. So I guess you're going into year eight, right? Of yeah. having uh, yeah. grown the business up. Things have changed a little bit <laughs> over eight years in, in performance marketing. And uh, I don't even know that there was performance marketing as a, a set of words back <laughs> back eight years ago. I'm sure and, not. We'll create new ones in a week. Yeah, anyway. right, right. It's just like now there's demand gen and there's performance marketing and then there's uh, revenue marketing. That's one of my new favorite ones. So I don't know, break it down a little bit. Like how's this all fit together? It's so confusing as a buyer. Well, yeah, I was hoping you would not confused enough. So we actually created our own category called customer generation <laughs> to deliver on the promise demand gen forgot about. Mainly what, you know, what Directive does that's really, really unique is all the other agencies I've ever met and the consultants and in-house folk, everybody who goes to market is actually going to market very differently than we help our clients go to market and also what we do for ourselves as research and development. So at Directive, which is kind of cool as an agency, you know, we spend over a million dollars a year on our own advertising. We have a larger content budget actually than almost all of our clients and a larger ad budget than almost all of our clients in the B2B kind of tech space a lot of times to experiment with our concepts. And the biggest thing we do differently that's allowed us to scale our advertising and thus our clients is people who advertise right now in a trip, typical demand gen model, they're going off of the data that exists in the platform. So like you log into LinkedIn and the primary source of your data is that industry you choose when you advertise computer software or architecture or you know ERP whatever that kind of choice is when you click that button you're essentially trusting the the LinkedIn black box has perf perfectly categorized the companies into that category that you want to advertise to and in two seconds you find out that's a lie right if you search betterment 
on LinkedIn? Are they financial services or are they computer software? Well, now you've got a problem because if you're trying to get computer software companies and you target financial services, yeah, you get Betterment, but you also get Northwestern Mutual. And conversely, if you target computer software, you might get Betterment, but you more likely get an outsourced software development company out of Bulgaria that does software development. And So in other words, this black box, what I found is when taking it apart, 50% of your data on LinkedIn pre-impression is incorrect. So before you launch a campaign, half of your impressions are going to people that don't fit your ideal customer profile, your ICP. So what we do at Directive for our clients and for ourselves is we manually verify every single solitary account in your total addressable market before ever spending a dollar. By just doing that, we are 50% more effective than our clients were and every other agency competitor. And that level of discipline and that approach is a part of customer generation, which we then pair with detailed financial modeling, actually working with our clients' finance and sales orgs. And we run everything on LTV CAC models with only first-party data and a far greater depth, frankly, than anyone else I've seen in the B2B space. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So you're basically doing the R&D and investment to test out every category, or I guess relative to at least that's where it helps your business to focus on a particular category because you didn't have to buy every ad that ever possibly existed on. on well, yeah, we run essentially, I run TV commercials, I run audio right. campaigns, I run anything and everything because I'm only going after these 6,500 software companies with over 100 employees, at least 25 million in funding, these exact titles. It's like right. ABM on steroids to a certain extent of how we right. do it. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Talk about uh, ABM. That's a, that's a great thing too, that, you know, I think people misuse that all the time when I, when I talk to them, I, and I primarily sit in the, you know, the bottom funnel. So sales seat closer type of situation. And, you know, we're, we're very reliant on you folks up at the top of the funnel to, to drive us, you know, good calls. I mean, ABM sucks. I mean, like, I think, <laughs> you know, I think we're kind of all in the same boat where, the reason ABM sucks is like, okay, so I went all in on it, right? I've used every platform or our clients have, right? Demandbase, uh, SixSense, Metadata, Clearbit, ZoomInfo, whoever you're using, right? We, we, and we do, frankly, the marketing for a lot of these players, right? Like a lot of the sales and marketing tech ecosystem is actually customers and directive, and they're great. However, ABM is a problem. And the reason ABM is a problem is if you've ever spent any moment of your time as a marketer in sales development, and I highly encourage you do, you'll figure out that the thing ABM is selling is a lie, right? So I ran sales development here, tens of millions of dollars for five plus years, like full tech stack, every piece, like dream R&D environment, perfect sales stack market. I mean, I'm talking, I've been all the way deep in connect and sell. I'm talking lead to account mapping at scale. I'm talking auto dialers. I mean, I've really ran sales development. Like really ran it. And I've brought in a top head of sales development from massive SaaS companies and had them run it. So I've really like been in that world, not just performance. I love all parts of kind of revenue. Here's the truth about ABM. When you read that Engageo playbook or et cetera, et cetera, first off, why is Engageo not in business anymore? I don't know. Why do Six Sense and Demand Base have a, the highest churn rate of any software company pretty much out there? I don't know. Maybe it's because the concept of ABM is you get 100 accounts and you're supposed to try to break into them or 300 accounts or 500 accounts. Marketing is codependent on timing, no matter what anyone says. And because the account pool is so small in ABM, I borderline never see anyone ever able to scale it 
or answer, I think, the most important question as a high-level marketer, which is if I gave you another $100,000, what would you do with it? No one ever answers ABM because there's not enough market potential and the programs don't really work because they're all about the wrong KPIs. What marketing loves to do is this concept that they can live in this world of like aloneness, like isolation. Like we can somehow exist from the broader ecosystem of a company and then pat ourselves on the back. And so what I mean by that is ABM campaigns looks like this today. We're going to pick our top 100 to 500 accounts. We're going to send them irrelevant display ads. And then we're going to let the SDR team know which companies we delivered X amount of impressions to. Now, let me tell you a little bit about those 500 accounts and why it doesn't work. One of those 500 accounts is Adobe. Now, what you don't aren't allowed to do in the ABM platforms today is frequency capping at the account level. And so when you had that $5,000 budget, well, actually $4,700 went to Adobe, $300 went to the other accounts in your ABM list. None of them give a damn about your brand. None of them who know who you are. And your SDR sure as hell don't want to call on them. And that is the truth of ABM right now. Or God forbid you say you're doing really good and they download a MQL asset that goes into an automated drip campaign that once again, I guarantee you, there is no SDR in the world who's like, oh goody, the CMO downloaded the ultimate guide to ERP software. I'm going to call them and book a call right now. Yeah, right. Not how it works. No, so no. that is what I think about ABM. Yeah, I get that. It doesn't scale at all. We find pretty decent traction with thinking about it from the smaller company standpoint, but you're right. You can't, you can't grow that up because once you've reached that automated threshold, it's just falls over completely. Works now, do pretty, I think works pretty good? Really good okay. Do I think it works with mid-market companies with a multi-threaded account where you're discoverable at the bottom of the search and results page in your category, like uh Captera G2 software advice, you search that you show up. Yes, that works. Does it work if you layer it with physical gift giving, calling, LinkedIn campaigns from top executives to match titles, fully orchestrated and done perfectly? Yes. Have I ever met a client who's done it that way? No. No. <laughs> right. It's like that's the caveat. Can ABM work? Yes. Does anyone have enough buy-in? Yeah, across all departments, top down, to make it work. Right. Right. It's Not it's a classic really. unfunded mandate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, right. I think what's the quote for that? Like nobody has enough money to do ABM right, but everybody has enough money to do it twice. <laughs> right, right, right. Similar to developing bad software, right? <laughs> yeah, it's I, I so can ABM work? Yes. So what we did at Directive was say, okay, if that's the reality of ABM, what if we just turned up the scale of it 100x and then allowed it to work for what it was good at, which is Okay, let's delete the waste in our ad campaigns. Let's only advertise to people in our total addressable market, but then let's advertise to enough people that we can get the timing right. In other words, if you increase your audience side, the likelihood of someone seeing your ad and be like, oh my God, my boss just asked me to get three quotes, that moment goes up 10x when you increase your audience size. Right. What you learn in sales development, right? Every time an SDR is underperforming, what do you, what's the trick? Rewrite better emails, everything else? No, it doesn't really work that way. You have to send more. And I know we wish that wasn't the case, but there's no magic bullet to like drive intent via a lot of these transactionary channels, like outbound email or display ad. Right, right. And yeah, timing is one of our classic sort of six B2B objections to, you know, it's like, are either not in charge of this? I don't have mandate. I don't have time. I don't have budget or call me next quarter. And, you know, and I think the real key is there, like, how do you deliver any kind of meaningful message that doesn't feel like the tap, tap? 
you know, you said you wanted to hear from me next quarter. Oh, hey, here it is. You know, we all hate that. Like we all, we, well, none yeah. of us want but to send ABS those emails. But ABM marketers now is display ads. That's right. the issue. Like when marketers think ABM, because that's what the ABM software sell. And that's right. kind of my, that's my problem with ABM is like people think they can run, launch, you know, a display ad that they themselves ignore, but hope their audience doesn't. <laughs> I don't think I've yeah, ever actually looked at an ad on LinkedIn. <laughs> I'd have to think about that, but. How do you how do you make LinkedIn effective? I I hear like violent stories on both sides that that they don't you know a lot of people hate it, a lot of people love it, and you know where where does it fit real well? Yeah, so we spent I think over a million dollars in twenty twenty one on LinkedIn, and we drove about sixteen million dollars personally. So does it work? Yes, I hired about one hundred and fifty people in the last six months because of LinkedIn advertising. It works. Selling professional services, average order value, flirting around $200,000. It works. Okay. I want to just layer that like actual physical, like I put my own money on it, run my own campaigns, tens of millions of dollars coming just from LinkedIn. It works. Now, I've had it work and not work, which is what happens with most people. So let me explain what working in marketing is and not working. So something that works in marketing is where marketing does an activity for the wrong reason to get credit for something for the sake of getting credit for something. Right. So here's how most people like run. Bad like bad KPIs. You know, I got an MQL. Yeah, so this is how most people, yeah, so most people run sponsored content on LinkedIn. So the way it works is they take a below average asset that they created three years ago. <laughs> this is just the truth. And they call it something different. So they take their like ultimate guide to ERP software or their like tech spec sheet or their white paper, whatever that is. Okay. They take that kind of asset and they put it on LinkedIn and they decide that their decision maker is the C-level. I don't know how this is the case, but everyone decides that somehow the C-level decides things on LinkedIn, which is not how any C-level human buys. I want to point out. Okay. So I have a thing called champion is more important than decision maker. Okay. So in other words, if you go look at your client list, the point of contact you interact with daily, that is your decision maker on LinkedIn. That is the person you want to advertise to. I advertise to the director of demand gen, not a VP, not a CMO. I advertise to a director because that's the human that is going to interact with my brand post signature. Okay. So start there. So that's the first thing. But what they normally do, and when I say they, I mean the broader market of B2B advertisers. They choose the CFO. And they go after the CFO with a sponsored content ad that says download the ultimate checklist to AP close. And then when that person fills out their email and maybe they add the phone number thing, they send it to the SDR. The SDR calls and they say no one picked up or they did pick up and they haven't read it yet or they say they're not interested. And then that call, they got that lead for about $48 if they're doing exceptionally well. So like the best you can do in that environment, you're at like a 48 to $65 cost per lead, let's say on LinkedIn. Marketing is like, hell yeah, we're crushing it. 40% conversion rate. We even personified it. So now it's like the CFO's guide to the AP and then it's the director of finance's guide to AP. I've done all this, man. Like I've crushed this and been like 40, 50, 60% conversion rates. I'm the king. Then you follow up with SDRs. You find out that no one has created an active opportunity no one was able to drive a sales intent. And now all those leads that you got for $50, you could have bought for 75 cents on Zoom Info for the same amount of purchase intent. So SDR team gets your budget back. Chief revenue officer stops funding you. And marketing says LinkedIn doesn't work. 
that is where the market is right now. <laughs> I, I yes. Uh, I now I'm thinking of all of the the reason I don't use most of this crap that comes up because it is like the recycled inbound marketing crap that used to be gated but now since we don't gate things anymore we'll stick it on linkedin and put a different cover page on it <laughs> we stick it on linkedin and we use lead gen form on it which is intrinsically not a bad concept the problem is is that you're trying the marketing is trying to drive an mql to say look how good we did and now it's sales is problem instead what we do at directive is we drive an sql from linkedin so we're running conversation ads with gift cards so Hey, Ledge, love what you're doing. You know, we help X, Y, and Z companies in your space. We'd love to set up a call with you. If you show up on the call with our head of strategy, not an SDR, not an AE, but like the right human, we'll get you a $150 gift card to Amazon. Interested? Right. So it's a high enough threshold that, well, my time's worth that. You know, sure. Yeah. And, and you know that that meeting is worth a certain amount of money if you did your KPIs right. So why not just cut to the chase well, and buy you it? Do, yeah. <laughs> Correct. So we do manually verified data, right? So we first confirm that every one of those accounts is going to hit our minimums. In other words, so we're layering all their ad spend data. So I know all of those accounts fit our minimum list. So I know they're val validated. They're verified accounts, number one. Number two, I know the titles I'm going after. And number three, I know my LTV CAC model for LinkedIn and I'm actually focusing on increasing my activation rate, not decreasing my acquisition cost. The biggest problem with B2B is most advertisers come from B2C and they're fully focused on decreasing acquisition cost when they need to be increasing down funnel lifecycle activation rates. And so gift cards, what they do is they actually increase your ability from getting someone to from seeing your brand, let's say an impression, to an intro call because you're incentivizing the intro call. So by incentivizing the SQL, you actually have an exponentially lower SQL by using a $100 gift card than not using a $100 gift card. And that's our kind of secret sauce. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think that there's so much overwhelm in outbound and, and any type of outreach now. Like I can't even read all my LinkedIn messages, you know, <laughs> having any type of like... And, and, you know, it's like completely irrelevant, like, hey, you know, like new phone system. And I mean, all this stuff that you kind of go like, is it 1995? Like, what is this? <laughs> like, like, I, don't, I don't have a phone <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Well, what are you talking about like, here, Pam? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's just like even personalization just feels so off now. You know, what I, I like about what you're saying is it's sort of like just honest <laughs> and authentic. It's like, I want to buy your time so that I can talk to you and I'm willing to pay you a good rate. Well, we call it psychological friction, right? What's the psychological friction? Okay, I got to hop on a 15 minute call with an SDR who doesn't know anything just to figure out price. And I know for a fact, they're not going to tell me price. So I still got to do another call. All right, I'm not that interested. But the truth is, if you go look at the B2B kind of scene, the number one KPI is always request a demo, request a proposal. But there's a lot of psychological friction with that offer. And so what we help our clients do is come up with more creative offers that create more of a balance of power, a little tit for tat. In other words, if I'm going to give you my time, what's an equitable exchange? And we found for 15 minutes, a $100 gift card uh, creates an equitable exchange and gets a lot uh, people a lot more likely to listen to your pitch. Uh, and as you know, it com frankly completely changed our company and our clients. And without an amazing amount of data, that sounds insane. 
I mean, it like it makes so much logical sense when you when you say it, and I completely agree. But you had to go and like validate this because pitching such an idea sounds nuts. You know what? what? Paying a person to show up, like you know, it's just sort of like is aren't they just going to abuse us and all this stuff? You know, like you get a lot of pushback. For me, I mean, it took us six months to monetize pledge. So it wasn't like I just turned this thing on and it worked because it did work. Like I I turned it on and it worked in the sense that like okay, we booked a bunch of meetings. But then your sales development reps, what you find about, about salespeople, especially if you're good at inbound, is your salespeople stink. And you love them, but they stink. And what I mean by that is they're really good at demonstrating. They're very bad at selling. In other words, because all they do all day is they wake up into their calendar and like, okay, sweet, I got three demos today. Dope. Well, you're not selling at that point. You're demonstrating. Selling is different. Selling requires the ability to create purchase intent as a human with another human. Now that is selling. Demonstrating is your product. You just demonstrate the product and shows the value. Well, what if someone's not sure if they're ready for your product? Most companies don't have enough differentiation or viewpoint on the world to get people ready for a demonstration. So we had to put all of our efforts into that. We came up with a little saying, right? People will pay for different. They don't pay for better. And so what gets really nice then as a marketer is how do you see the world differently and how do you articulate that? And then how do you help your salespeople also convey that message of why we're different, not better? And that's how we get people from apathy to action. Yeah, I resonate with this a lot because, you know, we, my sales work, you know, we work with B2B services companies. And, and I mean, it's, it's high ticket stuff, you know, $200,000 consulting or whatever it is. And every single company you walk into has this sort of we're we're we care more or, you know, like the difference is that we harder. customize every engagement. I'm like, well, that's going to guarantee not to scale. And, you know, and I, I have to have the same discussion over and over again. And it's like, I completely relate to this idea that uh, I think demos are garbage. I've always been anti-demo and I'm even anti-sales deck. So I have zero materials. And if I can't pull it up on the fly on the browser in the Zoom call and demonstrate what I'm doing, you know, using totally disconnected assets, it feels inauthentic to me. And everybody always wants to see your sales deck. And uh, I'm like, just, nah, man, I'm never, ever going to do that. I hate demos and I hate sales materials. <laughs> I just don't do it. Yeah, no, man. I think all of us have our own way of winning business. I think the key is understanding how do you win business. And when I say win business, for you to be able to grow an organization, you have to win in a competitive environment. Yeah. In other words, you got to be able to win when they got three other quotes on, on their desk. And that's where different becomes so important. And so you did the you did the direct selling, and then ultimately had to grow out of doing it and build a team around it. That is also very hard. I found that you know founder led selling is just a different animal than being able to sort of train somebody else and build a system around it. That I, a lot of companies sketch or uh, rather have issues breaking out of that that sort of plateau. It's really difficult for sure. How'd you go about that? You know, it's hard to let go of that as a founder. Yeah, it took a lot of years. I think it took me seven, but I started getting out of it year one, at least trying to, year one, year two. I think the key is, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why it's hard. Number one, it's like there's a dopamine rush you get from selling. You don't get from anything else in business. Whether anyone wants to admit it or not, 
winning business is like the closest form to going back to being an athlete or whatever you kind of get your adrenaline rush from as a human. So I think that was, I think the hardest part for me is you lose that dopamine rush. There's nothing else like it in all of business. Maybe an acquisition, I would argue, is probably like it. But you don't do as many acquisitions as you do pitches. So there's something about just winning business that feels good. I think that's number one hard part for a lot of B2B leaders to get out of it, number one. Number two, you're better at it. Like you're, you, Empirically, you go look at your close rates. Your close rates are higher when you're involved as a CEO, founder, slash leader. If you got a C-level title, when you say something, it matters. All those reasons make it hard. So the way we were able to do it was... Most of us as leaders have no idea how much we cover up for and how poorly organized we are in going to market by being involved in the sales process. In other words, yes, we close way better when we're involved. However, even that close rate is exponentially under the potential of what we could do if we focused our efforts into cultivating our viewpoint on our industry and focusing our teams. Uh, and articulating how we go get that exact human to want us. So most of us say that we serve, let's say, B2B. And then what you find is, okay, well, when you pitch a manufacturer who has an active cart system across 300,000 SKUs, it's a very different pitch than if you're pitching a SaaS company who's a platform or a SaaS company that's product-led or a SaaS company that's enterprise or whatever. And so most of us have a really bad positioning for our brands and our companies, and we cannot get out of sales because our story is not simple enough for someone else to tell it, no matter how skilled they are. So for me, my trick to getting out of it was niching, but actually niching, not niching and then unniching because I wasn't disciplined. Sticking to it. Right? I think we Yeah, it's turning that, away like right? tons and tons of business and trying not to waste your time doing those calls, but ultimately sometimes you just go hey, this one made it through to my call calendar and it's not the right fit. Let me refer to you a friend. And that happens a lot. I mean, like yes. a lot, a lot. Being willing to do that is step one, right? And then step two is, okay, now that you've served a, a specific niche, how has that changed everything for your company? And if it hasn't yet, you once again don't have your story. So the story isn't that you just serve SaaS. It's that the consultants you hire have SaaS expertise. The training program you run is all derived around SaaS expertise. The recruiters you have are all focused into SaaS. The deliverables you have. So in other words, if you changed your industry, what would you actually have to change your services or not? And if the answer is not, then you're not niched enough. In other words, because you only do SaaS, how does your SEO deliverable different than everyone else? Because you only do SaaS, how is your content deliverable different than everyone else? Because you do SaaS, how is your reporting different than everyone else? And when you answer every one of those questions correctly, now you can step out of sales because you have a story that is competitive outside of the person delivering the story. And that's how you get out of sales. Yeah, yeah I love that. Actually, that's, that's a really good articulation. I hadn't thought of it that way. We always look at it as, you know, just write down everything. All questions are good once, but if you can't answer it the next time with a link to something, then you haven't properly documented your operation or your sales prop or, you know, whatever it is. So uh, in training people to do knowledge management across the enterprise from a revenue perspective, I've always found to be challenging. Like, why the hell do we want to keep having this conversation again? Write the damn thing down. And if you don't know the answer, 
it's that same idea of that niching. It's like, just for God's sake, like if this is too complicated to even write down ourselves, how do we expect anybody to buy this? Yeah. <laughs> and that, and that's the thing, right? And we use notion for that here. So notion is really powerful mm -hmm. for us. And we have a wiki for every department, every role yep. and, you know, getting really disciplined. And we actually have a, we have a team that actually owns our documentation here. And by a huge point, actually funding document, trying to get directors and leaders to magically have time to do documentation is a comical pipe dream um, as a leader. And so if you want to get better at documentation, you have to fund it, right? We say pieces, not people. I think the biggest mistake companies make when they want to grow fast is they think people can do more. And the truth is they just need to hire a different piece. In other words, you need certain pieces for your business to move quickly. You not certain people because what happens with people is we're like, well, you know who Sally is a little underutilized. Maybe Sally could also take on documentation. And anytime you give someone a second hat to wear, it looks funny on their head. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And play the frictional cost of having people shift between two different dispositions. Uh, but how did then how do you keep niche sort of like hyper-focused jobs uh, interesting then, you know, so that there is a path to uh, when you get bored after a year for those folks, do you design a, a trajectory well, for no. them? <laughs> nah, Ledge, that's just your and I's view because we, we do everything. There's a lot of people who've dedicated their whole career to being great at one thing. And those are the people you got to love. So while you and I see it as how the hell are you not bored out of your brain just doing documentation all day? Some people find that as their vocation or their calling. So the key, once again, is the piece. When you think about it as people, you're like, okay, well, Susan, yeah, I guess Susan could run all the documentation, but she's going to want some type of career growth. It's like, no, it's like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to find the person who's only wants to the best in the world at documentation, the person who's sharing their opinions on social media about it, the person who has a worldview, they have an original thought an actual belief system around documentation. I'm going to go get that, get that human and I'm going to get out of their way. And I think it's more about recognizing a new mindset as a leader that I'm not going to try to find talented people and then give them job stuff. I'm going to define the job description. I'm going to spend a lot of time in preparing for why is this role important to the organization? What is my hypothesis for funding this role? What is my timeline for evaluation on success? How am I going to measure that? Okay, perfect. Now that I've actually done my due diligence, how do I go interview to that scorecard and then find that exact human that fits this exact need and then get out of their way? And when you actually do that, I mean, you can put rocket fuel in your business for how successful you can be at an administrative or operational excellence um, at scale. How much of this did you come to the table with when you started the company? Like, what'd you, what'd you do before? Like, where did these belief sets and sort of disciplines come from for you in your founder journey? Yeah. So I guess I'm a little different in that sense. So I did my degree in three years in economics, did my master's my fourth year, was kind of trying to go play pro soccer was kind of where I was trying to go. So I was kind of captain of the university soccer team. I was trying to get scouted. I was trying to go pro. Um, that was kind of what I was focused on tore my knee, uh, kind of senior year. So I actually just started selling uh, social media calendars on Fiverr and then with 20 bucks started directive. We never took a penny of debt, never took anything else. And then we kind of turned that into, you know, a pretty large organization. I'd say the largest marketing agency for SaaS in the world. For me, I work a lot of hours and I read a lot of books and I try to ask a lot of questions. And I just keep pushing. So I found if you do, you know, 10, 12 hours a day for eight straight years, 
it's hard to beat you over an extended period of time. Is that like, uh, you know, the mythical hustle culture, you buying into that? Or like, do you think of it differently? Oh, it's not hustle related. It's more like, you know, because you can't like, hu- <laughs> the hustle culture is hard, man. Like, if you're just doing it for hustle culture, like it doesn't really work that well, because you'll burn out. The The key is you have to find what, like, I'm my, my biggest passions are not letting my potential down and kind of preparing myself for what's next. And usually that's involved, you know, leading other people. And if you really want to be a great leader, you have to model out your expectations. If you're trying to build a high growth culture, you have to show the discipline of real hard work. And and that's hard work isn't uh, like, for me, when I'm working those hours, I'm not usually even working. I'm usually just in my head. I'm usually just like pen and paper trying to say, okay, Right. Like my mentality for management is a little different. So a lot of people, when they work hard, they're trying to take their current situation and figure out how they fix it. When I like to work hard, I like to sit down and dream and say, if I could do anything, what would I do? And I start from that point. And so I'll go into a one on one with a leader. I'll hear their problems. And they can't see the forest through the trees because that's the nature of, you know, owning a particular area. So all the time to try to step back and say, cool, if I could, if I was this human and I could do anything, 10x my budget, completely rebuild the team, hire a new role, and I try to remove myself and then I just play in my own head around how I would solve a problem. And that's what I like to do at night. So for me, I'm not working hard in that typical sense. But yeah, I mean, I live on an airplane. I try to speak at every conference. I try to do all, I just try to, you know, fully maximize my potential. And yeah, people can call it hustle this, hustle that. I went down the whole, I think like work-life balance sake for other people's values and not my own. And I was a lot less successful and I enjoyed it a lot less. I enjoy working hard. I'm just wired that way. I always have. And so that's where I find my passion. But I think the key is for everyone to find their passion and then it's a lot easier to stay consistent. Yeah, absolutely. I, I buy that a lot. And uh, what it's interesting for me to hear the athletes discipline. I find a lot of successful driven founders understand what the two a day workouts were and, you know, all those things like it definitely comes along for the ride. Like when you're in a, some kind of an endurance athlete or high performance athlete, there's an obvious correlation to uh, insane founder discipline. Well, I did soccer, right? So every night I worked out at soccer since I was, you know, in like a kid, I would train every night. So I just took that same thing and I just replaced it with business. So it was like, okay, you played soccer all day. You had dinner, you hung out with your family, you had hung out with your friends. You still have a life. But then when you get alone, the question is, do I still watch Netflix? Hell yeah, I love Netflix, HBO, whatever that is. But you'd be amazed at how much time you have in your life to better yourself to your passions if you can do it on a consistent basis. And I, I, that's worked for everything for me, right? Like whether I wanted to get good at golf, I used to shoot like 120 at golf. I wanted to break 80. It took nine months. All I did was practice every day. I just practiced for 30 minutes every day. Next thing you know, you take 30, 40 strokes off your game. It's you're able to do it. And literally anything, it's just that level of discipline and consistency and mentality. Well, daily for nine months, is like when you look back that doesn't sound like a lot but like that day-to-day grind of you know i i I was a distance runner and you know the joke for us was just you know nine out of ten days like you really don't want to be out there running 12 miles like it doesn't 
feel good. The question though is like the ninth, the tenth day feels amazing, and it's like the greatest run of your life, and you never know which one is going to be. Oh right. yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> so if you don't go out and do a it, thousand percent. I was ironically like all conference cross country runner in high school so i kind of did the same like all of them are the same anything you do in life like the same like i enjoy being bad at stuff i guess that's my secret i like being bad at stuff the process of getting good is actually more fun to me than being good and so i usually just quit so you're not a strength-based guy then you know there's the idea of like well you know if you're mozart you just play piano no I'm more like Da Vinci, I'd say, in that mentality. I'd rather be a Renaissance yeah, man and like, get good at everything. Right? I'd rather like <laughs> learn how to sail, be able to race, but never be the best at sailing, just so I could go on to figure out golf and then figure out how to race cars or jump out of a plane or whatever that is. I don't need to be the best at it. I just like to be good enough that I can say I'm good at something. Like Get to that point of like familiarity and ownership of a skill, but maybe not the greatest in the world. Not mastery no. then, no, full combination of of all the things. So do you do you pull from the different disciplines into like different ways of thinking about business? Then I'm sure you know like, like the, all those extra experiences. Does that help? I'm sure from thinking. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I was homeschooled growing up, so I got this weird classical education where I was learning like Dante's Allegory when I was like 11. Right, I grew up a missionary kid, so I think I went to over 50 countries before I was 16, and so I think a lot of it fueled now where i just i see things and i'm able to connect dots i don't think i like recognize it though i wouldn't say ledge i'm like going around be like this reminds me of that bowline i tied on the atlantic ocean i guess i don't <laughs> i think it's more just probably subconscious i think that yeah like the synapses are just growing i think it's just way. more a confidence builder man if you can constantly put yourself in situations where you're uncomfortable and insecure in other words you're doing something for the first time like i am just as uncomfortable and insecure as everyone else in a moment, I just try to literally turn it off. Like just like ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is confidence too, if that makes sense. So you can keep your confidence if you just like push those insecurities down or away. And if you do that a lot, you actually keep getting more confident. And that's the part that like I can be confident in a direction the company is heading that I've never been before. Because of I know I, I feel confident in my process for figuring out the success of that direction, not because I believe in the direction, but I believe in my ability and the team's ability to figure it out. And that's a different type of confidence, if that makes sense. Do you think experience that as course correction, like sort of agile type of of thinking, you know, where like you could be wrong about, you know, the, the direction you're going, but as long as you have a, a threshold of heuristics to kind of go like oh steer 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 like the way you drive down the highway and turn the wheel just a tiny tiny bit to stay in the lane you think of it that I way or is it I like wish. you know let's take a wild bet no it's you have to be more disciplined i guess to be honest because yeah like not or i don't get you as a risk taker for the sake of risk you no. you seem to be a measurer like uh adjust along the path and have discipline about you know doing the things that you know work. Yeah, for. it's more like that. I think, you know, when I was younger, I'm not even that old, but I've been doing it for pretty hard for about eight years. And so when I first, I'd say even the first six years mostly, I'd say it took me about six years to try to get this part, was there's an obsession as a founder with never leaving something on the table and turning over every stone. And the bigger you get, 
and the more leaders you have around you and the more effective you become uh, as a leader, you realize that it's more important to evaluate all the stones and turn fewer over. And I like to say that the depth of a solution is more important than the breadth of solutions. And so the depth of a strategy is more important than the breadth of a strategy. So I don't like to have a lot of things going on anymore like I used to. I was constantly testing this, testing that, pushing here, pushing there. We'll just pivot. We could get, man, you everybody who's behind you, they get lost on the trail, they get exhausted, and they forget that there is a peak that we're all heading to. And so what I try to do is take a lot more time these days deciding what we're going to do. And we actually run our company on trimesters, not quarters, because I want more time to execute. I found when I was running on quarters like everyone else, it was a month to plan, a month to do, a month to report slash plan again. And you end up never getting anything done. And you go a year and a half in with an exec team where it's just quarters. This whole QBR thing turns into a joke. What I wanted to do is say, what if we slowed down a little bit, went deeper, and were, were more methodical and aligned as a collective unit at what we were doing at a given time? So now we have a theme for the trimester. I present that a month beforehand. And then the team then takes that theme, and I don't tell them how to do it. I just say, here's what I'm looking for. Like right now in T1 of 2022, we're focused on labor and logistics. And so I want my team members and their respective business units and departments, because I run us like a holding company, to report into me what their strategy is for the next four months to improve us along the lines of labor and logistics. And then I set out what the objectives and key results are, and then they tell me how they're going to accomplish those. And so it's a little bit of mixed planning. And then I'm trying to drive that depth. So the trick now for our growth is alignment and depth, not volume and frequency. It's said uh, there's a niching to that. It's the same sort of discipline of like, don't be uh, a mile wide and two inches deep, which I see so many, so many firms just expand, expand, expand into this undeliverable realm of everything not being focused and we'll take any money that we can. And that's the, it's the number one way to peter out, you know, and just sort of, go I mean, the reason people can't, it, it's the so reason hard. people can't niche is they can't go get a specific customer. And that's the power of customer generation. That's the power of manually verifying your total addressable market and using an incentive to book a meeting because I can choose to only serve software because our sales org took 65% market share in 2021. Like we legitimately had 6,500 accounts and they booked meetings with 65% of them in 12 months. This works, but it's all about discipline and focus, financial modeling, differentiation, your positioning, your story, and then being aggressive. But when you put that all together, I mean, you can run really successful organizations that are passionate, that have quality control, that have impact. You just got to be able to actually go get the niche you said you wanted to serve. And then everything starts to work, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, if you can't serve those customers, it's just, you know, we're dreaming about a system that can't scale or doesn't exist or, you know, like that's your go to market, right? It's like we could sit around all day and try to sound smart, you know, and I think a lot of businesses waste a lot of time on, around whiteboards without actually testing. Yeah, a thousand percent. All right. So I always ask everybody, you know, toward the end to put on your futurist hat, you know, and sort of think about what are the big things that that audience members, executives, founders should be thinking about maybe next yeah, think, two years, like what's on your mind? Keep going bigger. If you're running an organization around talent, right? So most of us should be running organizations that are built around talent. As a leader, you need talent. 
and I'm not talking experience. I think this is a critical difference. You want to build an organization around talent, not experience. Experience uh, makes you feel good and lets you cover your ass when you make mistakes. So what I mean by that is it's very easy if you have a critical role for the company to not promote internally and to go external. And when you go external, to not hire the most talented person you spoke with or to have recruiters that are not filtering for talent, but instead filtering for experience. Because everybody, it's insurance. It's the biggest CYA in the world is the hiring people with experience. Well, he spent eight years at our top competitor and then she was the C-level exec at this company we all respect. And we're going to bring her in despite, frankly, being three rungs below where she was at historically because we know she can get us there. That's the biggest mistake I see in leadership that I'm still learning to not make myself is to hire for talent. And the reason I say you got to hire for talent and then go big is if you have people that are truly talented, they're not going to follow you if you're not going big enough. So how can you expand globally as an organization? So if you're looking at the next two years, what I think you need to do as a leader is you need to take your vision and 100 exit. And you have to articulate that 100x vision every day. So, okay, are you going to own SaaS in the U.S. or globally? And if you did own SaaS, where would you go next? Would you go into B2B? Would you go into B2C? How would you expand? What types of other business units or departments could you enter into that you don't currently have right now? Well, the quicker you can articulate that and define that for the next two years, you will find that the most talented people in the world will follow you because you have a dream big enough for their shoes to fit in. And so that would be my biggest recommendation for leaders. Right on, man. Love that. Garrett, fun conversation, lots of insights. Really appreciate you coming out. If people in the audience want to get in touch with you or follow you on stuff, what's the best channels for that? Yeah, check out Directive uh, if you're looking for a performance marketing agency. Um, on a personal level, uh, I do coaching. Uh, so if you ever want to chat on how to grow, whether just your organization, I do that. Uh, I got a couple people I help right there. I really love it and enjoy it. And then if you want just free advice on kind of B2B marketing, join society. It's uh, directiveconsulting.com forward slash society or join society. Um, it's a free Slack group. We have over a thousand members, B2B marketers, killer conversations. Nobody's selling you anything. Nobody's pitching. You can DM me. You can DM anyone on my team uh, and just ask a question. So check it out. I love the chat. Great, man. Thanks for coming out today. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.